I was asked what it was like to be the first woman Secretary of State a few minutes after I'd been named, and I said, well, I've been a woman for 60 years, but I've only been Secretary of State for a few minutes. Uh... Madeleine Albright became America's first female Secretary of State in 1997 during Bill Clinton's second term. I, Madeleine Corbell Albright, do solemnly swear... At the time, she was the highest-ranking woman in the history of U.S. government, and she went on to transform America's approach to foreign policy. Hello, everyone. I'm Dana Bash, filling in for David Chalian and Nia Malika Henderson, and this is Politically Sound. March is Women's History Month, and to celebrate, we thought it was fitting to speak with the iconic Madeleine Albright. So it's time to tune out the noise and tune in to what's politically sound. Secretary Albright, I am so honored that you are here to talk to me for this special edition podcast about Women's History Month. You are the OG when it comes to history in government, particularly at the State Department and just generally speaking. And one of the things I was thinking about as I was preparing to talk to you, one of the many things, was where we are now. In the Biden administration, you have the first female Treasury Secretary and Janet Yellen. You have now the first Native American to hold a cabinet position in in Deb Holland. So as you watch that and you think about you as a trailblazer, what goes through your mind? Well, first of all, it's great to be with you. And the thing that goes through my mind is why is it still so unusual to have a first of something when women have had so many activities and things that we've tried to do over the time of the United States? We always think that we're the first in everything and we're not. And we have a first woman vice president. So the surprise for me has always been, why has it taken so long? What's the answer? I think it is very hard to answer it because it doesn't make sense. I have argued for a long time that in most countries, women are more than half the population. So it's a loss of a resource in many ways of having women participate. But I think it has been a problem in terms of just not understanding what women can contribute to public service or to the private sector. And so we do continue to be surprised. Yeah, we sure do. Let's go back in time. You have three daughters and you went to school to get your graduate degree as a mother, correct? Yes. You worked in jobs that women just didn't have very many of at the time. You've worked in the Senate. You worked, as you said, in the Carter administration. What was that like back then? I had decided that I was going to be a journalist. Mm -hmm. And while I was at Wellesley, I was one of the editors of the college paper. And I married a journalist, and I worked on a small paper in Rolla, Missouri, while he was in the Army, and Mm -hmm. went back to Chicago, and he worked for the Chicago Sun-Times. And we were having dinner with his managing editor, And he said to me, so what are you going to do, honey? And I said, I'm going to work on a newspaper. And he said, I don't think so. You can't work on the same paper as your husband because of labor regulations. Mm. And even though there were three other papers in Chicago at the time, he said, and you wouldn't want to compete with your husband, so go find something else to do. And I kind of saluted and did and went to work for Encyclopedia Britannica. And then we moved to New York and... What happened was I was trying to figure out what to do. I was pregnant with, it turns out it was with twins. It was before Mm. sonograms and they didn't know Mm -hmm. that the reason I was fat was because of (laughs) 
But they were born early, and I took the time while they were, I had to leave them in the hospital to go study Russian. And it made me think that I would go to graduate school, which is what I did. And it took me a very long time. But then I did go through all those series of jobs. And in many ways, the story is that I was able to uh, take advantage of the fact that I had a degree, um, that mm-hmm. it wasn't just my friend Madeline, it was Dr. Albright. Mm-hmm. And people you know, say you shouldn't say you were lucky, but I was lucky in terms of being at the moment when people had decided they actually needed a woman in a particular job. And so mm. I was 10 years older than everybody, but I, I really had a, a pretty good run in my government jobs, as you've described I would say them. so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would say so. That's an understatement for sure. I want to ask about something that I've always wondered about, which is before your secretary of state, you were the second female U.S. ambassador to the U.N. after Jean Kirkpatrick, yep. uh, the first for a Democratic president. But you're there and you are very lonely as a woman. <laughs> Am I correct? The, of the Security Council representatives, you were the only woman? Yes. And I have to tell you, you're right about the lonely. It's very strange because I went to a girl's high school and I went to a woman's college. Mm. And you would think that I had grown up in a place where generally I was not the only woman. But then when I went into the government, I was the only woman often in the room. And I was the only woman on the Security Council. And it's interesting because I had learned a lesson when I was in the government the first time. And I'm sure this has happened to you or maybe not to you, but to many, is you're the only woman in a meeting and you think, Okay, I'll say something. And then you Mm -hmm. think, well, it'll sound stupid, so you don't say it. And then some man says it, and you think you're mad at yourself for not saying (laughs) something. So I had decided that my mantra was going to be that women have to interrupt. And if you're going to interrupt, you have to have what I call active listening, and you know that you're going to say something in a strong voice. So after my first term in government, I went to teach at Georgetown and I have co-ed classes and I talked about that and I said, nobody in this class can raise his or her hand, interrupt. So my classes were a bit of a zoo, but that was my (laughs) mantra. So then I get to the UN and I'm sitting there in the first meeting. And by the way, most of the meetings don't take place in that fancy room. They're in a a back room Mm -hmm. and I'm sitting there and there are 14 men sitting there glaring at me. And I thought to myself, well, I won't talk today. I'll just uh, see if they like me. And then all of a sudden, I saw the sign that said United States in front of me. And I thought, if I don't speak today, the voice of the United States will not be heard. So even Mm. after all that instruction to everybody, it took an (laughs) active sense that I had to do something to speak up as the only woman. I'm sure you have lots of stories from when you were the only woman in the room. Well, I do. I think the part that is interesting, because there are different things that happen, some of the adjectives that are used about women actually happen. So here I was, ambassador to the United Nations and a cabinet member, and I was in New York, and one of the things that was happening was that people were coming to me and saying, all those people, these were the Bosnians, saying, terrible things are happening, why isn't the United States doing something? And I would come from New York to the meetings in Washington, and I would argue, saying we've got to do something about what's going on in Bosnia. Mm -hmm. And some of the other men, the men around the table, actually did say to me, Madeline, don't be so emotional. 
it really made me realize that I had to somehow argue in some way that I wasn't ever accused of that and trying to not get involved in an issue in a way that seemed too personal. Yeah, no, absolutely. And by the way, it's okay to get emotional about genocide, just for the record. (laughs) For the record, that's okay. Yeah, well... (laughs) And I read that you said at that moment you thought to yourself... I have to step out of myself, that normal, reluctant female mode. Definitely. That's something that so many people can relate to. What do you mean when you say reluctant female mode? Well, because I think that part of it is you always kind of, first of all, have to assess who else is in the room. But we do honestly kind of feel that we need to know whether they like you. You know, what is their sense about you? And it makes you reluctant. And I think that it does take an act of decision to make it happen. The reason I told that whole story was that I knew that that was a problem. I had trained my students to do something about it. And all of a sudden, there I am. And I had to step outside of myself because of that reluctant mode. And even somebody like you who went to all-girls school, who went to an all-women college, you still felt that way. Was it because of the times? Was it because of how you were raised? Or is it a combination of all of those things? I think a combination of things because I think that my era, by the way, I always say I went to college sometime between the invention of the iPad and the discovery of fire. But uh, (laughs) the bottom line is that in a women's college, you do have all the leadership roles Mm -hmm. and you get used to having things that you needed and your college mates would respect what you were doing. But when you're in the outside world, all of a sudden, you kind of lose that sense and you need to have somebody telling you you're fine. And sometimes it could be an inner voice if you're the only woman. And sometimes you really look to your sisters to kind of say, we're hitting this together. But some of it is is being raised that way. And some of it is the kind of social environment that has uh, been out there all along. And by the way, one of the things I did, Dana, when I was at the UN, it was one of the first times that I didn't actually have to cook lunch myself. So (laughs) I said to my assistant, invite the other women Mm -hmm. ambassadors to my uh, residence. And at that time, there were 183 countries in the UN. And I get to my place and there's six other women there. So Canada, Philippines, Kazakhstan, Trinidad, Tobago, Jamaica, and Liechtenstein, and me. Being the American, I created a caucus, (laughs) and we called ourselves the G7, literally. And so uh, we supported each other. The girl seven. Yeah. (laughs) And you also, I mean, in all seriousness, the G7 helped to change the UN in that you made rape a weapon of war. Yes. The thing that was interesting, one of my first votes when I got to the UN was to create the war crimes tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. Mm -hmm. And the thing that had happened was most of the crimes had been committed against women. And so what we did, the G7, was to lobby to get women judges on the war crimes tribunal. And we managed to get two women judges. And that was one of the things that happened. We did get rape declared a weapon of war. And so Despite our small numbers, when we work together, I think we really made a difference. Uh, I'm very proud of that. We'll be right back with more from former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. Stay with us. 
This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back. We're speaking with the first female Secretary of State, Madeleine Albright. I have one other question that's more about your history personally, fleeing the Nazis. And I just wonder what went through your mind as you were watching what happened on January 6th with people storming the United States Capitol, including at least one person wearing a Camp Auschwitz shirt. Well, let me say that one of the things I grew up with the fact that we spent World War II in London Mm -hmm. and my father worked for the government in exile and he broadcast over BBC into Czechoslovakia all through the war. And then there was the problem after the war. My father became ambassador to Yugoslavia and he was a a professional diplomat and he had another assignment. And then the communists took over in Czechoslovakia and he didn't want to work for them. Mm -hmm. And so two times that authoritarian regimes made it difficult for my family to carry on what they wanted to do. And I um, have obviously gotten very involved in politics and studied, you know, what makes societies change. And so I wrote a book. It's called Fascism, A Warning. Mm -hmm. And basically, you know, people throw around the term fascism without knowing what it means. It's not an ideology. It's a way of gaining power. And what happens is there is a leader that identifies himself with one group of people at the expense of another, the scapegoats. And that is the kind of thing that is behind authoritarian governments. And so those who believe they are right and that the others are not, and that is what made me think when I saw what was going on on January 6th. And there's no way to describe the adjective. It's more than offensive to see people wearing some of the things that had to do with the way Jews were treated during World War II without understanding anything. And then really having that kind of uh, aspect of creating the scapegoatism of somebody that you disagree with and thinking that you have the right to demolish other things and that there is no sense of societies are complicated and that you can't exacerbate the divisions. So I think that it, it... It was a horrible moment that makes you think that we can't go through something like this again, and we have to call it out. Yes, we do. We absolutely do. I want to go back to Vice President Harris, because on this day, as we tape on Tuesday, she's actually making her first address to and before the United Nations. It's COVID style. She had to tape it and do it virtually. But in this address, she said... 
the, quote, status of women is the status of democracy. The status of democracy also depends fundamentally on the empowerment of women, not only because the exclusion of women in decision-making is a marker of a flawed democracy, but because the participation of women strengthens democracy. Well, it's perfect, and it is absolutely true. You need to have full participation in a democracy. And I'm chairman of the board of something called the National Democratic Institute, and we have worked very hard to get women elected in a variety of countries. It's not simple for women to have those kinds of positions because what happens as women run for office, their families are threatened, they are threatened, there are all kinds of problems, and yet the issue is it really is important to get women into government and into these various jobs so that the laws can be such so that there can't be violence against women. And I often say that you can't have a democracy if you don't have women participating. And so uh, women are active in making a difference. And it also just doesn't make any sense to leave people out. Mm-hmm. It's true. And, you know, as I was reading that quote, uh, Secretary Albright, the status of women is the status of democracy. I was thinking of then First Lady Hillary Clinton in China saying women's rights are human rights and human rights are women's rights. If there is one message that echoes forth from this conference, let it be that human rights are women's rights and women's rights are human rights once and for all. She really pushed her husband, then President Clinton, to pick you, didn't she? Yes, it's a very funny story, actually. What happened, I was at the UN and I was a cabinet member at that time. Mm -hmm. And Warren Christopher made clear that he wasn't going to want to be Secretary of State for a second term. And so there was what I call the period of great mentioning. (laughs) And my name was out there. And the first thing that happened was that Somebody said a woman couldn't be Secretary of State because Arab leaders wouldn't deal with a woman. Mm. And so Arab ambassadors at the UN got together and they said, we've had no problems dealing with Ambassador Albright. We wouldn't have any problems dealing with Secretary Albright. And then somebody at the White House, and I never want to know who, said, yes, Madeline's on the list, but she's second tier. And you don't know who that was? I have no idea. And I don't want to know. But I basically, I thought I'll never get this job. Well, anyway, I did. And what happened was the following. There were often that at that time, First Lady Clinton and President Clinton and I would travel together. Mm -hmm. And we were abroad. And what happened was I would introduce her, she would introduce him. At which point he told the following story, which was during that period, Hillary would come to him and say, why wouldn't you choose Madeline? She is most in tune with your views expresses them better than anybody else. And besides, it would make your mother happy. So that is how it happened. <laughs> oh, the mother card. <laughs> yeah. The mother no. card. I, that, that makes sense. But Hillary and I, we had a great time and we really were a tag team. Mm. And she was just a remarkable ambassador for women's rights, uh, health issues, all kinds of things that she got to be known for. But it would be great, the kinds of things she did as first lady. So the famous quote. There is a special place in hell for women who don't help other women. I I couldn't find the genesis of that. Where did you first say that and why? Well, I used to say it very early on, and I said it because of my own experience. Because during the period that I was getting my PhD, which was a long time, there were other women who said to me, why are you in the library when you should be with your children? 
Mm. Or later, why aren't you in the carpool line? And Women. The, These are women, not men. Women. No, women. So in addition to being judgmental, we have kind of this a bad habit of really thinking that if you are don't have confidence in yourself, you think another woman doesn't have confidence mm. in herself. Mm. And so I did say that the problem really was that there was a special place in hell for women who didn't help each other. And it got so famous that it ended up on a Starbucks cup. But it never <laughs> meant that it was necessary for women to vote for other women mm-hmm. uh, because that is not what I said. Mm-hmm. And there's certain women I certainly wouldn't vote for. Mm-hmm. But it was mostly in terms of a support system that you're not being judgmental about what another woman is doing in terms of either being a working mother or not being a mother or are various things that we have a tendency to do. We're almost out of time, and I want to make a very hard, weird turn. Here we are, hopefully, coming out of this horrible pandemic. And I am one of the many people who discovered the Gilmore Girls during the pandemic. (laughs) And I was so excited to see that you were in it. I love that you so embrace pop culture, Gilmore Girls, Parks and Rec. Of course, the television show that was so successful, Madam Secretary, I believe that you at least advised a bit on that. So one of the many, many things that I just admire so much about you is that you're so serious but you still have fun and you don't take everything so seriously. And I feel like that is a good lesson for women and men out there. I think very important. By the way, I do watch television. One of the things that happened is that I I always rationalized why I watch a certain show. So at a certain Mm -hmm. time, I was watching called Army Wives, Uh which talked about what that was like, and that had a message. And I did watch Gilmore Girls, because it was mother-daughter relationships. Mm, oh, yeah, And when of they called and said, uh, would you mind if somebody played you in Gilmore Girls? I said, yes, I mind. I want to play myself. Love it. And I do think that it's important to be serious, but also to have fun and to to recognize that there are wonderful things you can do if you have a sense of humor. And sometimes you can really kind of undermine a serious situation by being able to have a sense of humor about it. And people are very surprised, including my grandchildren. I was (laughs) doing something and all of a sudden one said to his mother, I didn't know that Grandma Maddie could be so funny. (laughs) (laughs) They call you Grandma Maddie? Yes, Grandma Maddie. Oh, that's so great. Oh, I love that. I love that. Well, I took so much of your time and I just want to say thank you Thank you for joining me. Thank you for giving your insights about your unbelievable experiences. I could talk to you all day for hours and hours and hours, but thank you. Thank you for your service. And you're still teaching. I called when you were uh, teaching a class virtually, I assume, right? Yes. And, um, you know, you're just wonderful. And I really appreciate it. Well, and I have to say, Dana, I love watching you. I think that having wanted to be a journalist, to Mm -hmm. watch you really do the job in the most remarkable way and be able to connect and explain very difficult things to your viewers. And the most important thing in terms of our life is for people to have information. Information Mm -hmm. is the basis of how societies, democratic societies exist and the trust that is created between the person that's giving the information and the listener. And so hats off to what you're doing. Thank you. That means a lot. 
That's it for this week's episode of Politically Sound. Thanks for listening. If you could please take a few minutes to give us a rating and a review, and if you're listening for the first time, don't forget to follow us on your favorite podcast app so you get our latest episode each week delivered right to you. Politically Sound is a production of CNN Audio. This episode was produced by Mimi Mutesa and Bridget Nolan. Haley Thomas is our senior producer. Raj Mukheja is the senior production manager, and Francisco Monroy is our engineer. David Toledo is the team's production assistant, and the executive producer of CNN Audio is Megan Marcus. We'll be back next week. 